Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Look Ahead Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and the only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, HII delivering the advantage. Uh, joining us today is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you guys had a great weekend and thanks so very much for joining us. We did, Vagerman. Thanks for having me again on the show. Uh, absolutely wouldn't be Monday unless you were joining us. Um, here we, we are again uh, in uh, the category of uh, repetitive stress disorder, uh, teetering on the verge of a government shutdown uh, as uh, we have heard this could be a staged uh, shutdown uh, where uh, different parts of the government <laughs> shut in different ways. Um, walk us through what your base case is uh, at this moment as we, again, approach another uh, precipice. Again, we're, we're Groundhog Day, right? We keep playing this uh, movie over expecting a different ending. Um, hopefully there is one this time, at least the, the endings that we've seen in the past, which is even if there is a short shutdown, <clears throat> which I think is going to be the base case, I, I really, I don't think it's going to be material for the outlook for defense. And the reason I say this is, to your point, yes, there are, you know, four appropriations bills that basically will lapse. Appropriations will lapse on March 1st <clears throat> without a continued resolution. And you get the other eight. Um, I suppose what matters for this audience is the included in that first tranche is Veterans Administration and Military Construction, and then obviously the second tranche on March 8th includes the uh, the, the Department of Defense or the, the balance of Department of Defense appropriations. I don't understand the brinkmanship here, but that's the way the game is played. I stand by a view that as much as um, you know, people might think they could win uh, something, I don't know what they think they can win out of shutting down the federal government. Um, they... The third rail that's going to be very difficult for them to touch and survive would be an instance where you skip a military pay date. And, you know, that's why I keep coming back to, um, you know, the next federal pay and military pay is is March 15th. After that, <clears throat> I think it's uh, because the, the final day of the month falls on a Sunday, it would be March 29th. So I wouldn't be surprised. This is data that I published in my Sunday look ahead note that, you know, if we see a shutdown, uh, at least for the four appropriations bills, it may last a couple of days. Um, but again, you know, there there's a political penalty to be paid for this. And I think there's a gigantic political penalty to be paid if people uh, in the military miss a, a paycheck here. So that's why I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, somehow something happens. And in true Washington fashion, it'll probably be at the very last moment. Um, uh, the the big difference between Groundhog Day and reality is one is a fantasy film in which uh, he can actually kill himself and get away with it, whereas uh, we in real life uh, can't plunge off uh, the cliff repeatedly, or or to use my oft-used Titanic analogy, it doesn't matter how good your engine room is, as long as you keep glancing off of icebergs, it ends badly. Um, yeah. <laughs> do What's your sense, Byron, on, on the a supplemental and where we end up in this. Obviously, everybody is ratcheting up pressure um, um, on Congress to uh, approve uh, the funding uh, that's been agreed to by the Senate. Um, 
you know, Vladimir Zelensky this week commemorating both the second anniversary of Russia's latest invasion, but also the 10th anniversary of uh, Moscow's original uh, attack uh, on Ukraine. Um, you know, the president said 31,000 have have died. Western analysts and the U.S. government suggest that that number is actually twice as high. Uh, yeah. You know, d- does anything change about this dynamic as people start making it abundantly clear that Avdivka happened because Ukraine is running out of weaponry and worse yeah. is going to happen? Well, someone someone right. I listened to, you know, basically said, you know, unfortunately, you've kind of put Ukraine on a starvation diet and that usually doesn't work out well. Um, you know, by by not providing, really, it's the air defense interceptors that I think are the critical uh, element. As much as uh, 155 millimeter, maybe lower caliber ammunition is going to matter as well, too. But you know, the I don't know where it's going to go, Vago. I I think there's a path. It may get intertwined with FY24 appropriations. There's still this notion, you know, you guys have talked about it a lot on the Friday show. I think if this came to a floor vote in the House, it would pass. But you've got a small minority of uh, extremists in the GOP who don't want that to happen. And so um, having said that, you know, there's still a torturous route through a discharge position petition um, in the House that might happen. And I think if it does happen, um, it would include, you know, the FY24 appropriations and some part of uh, the security supplemental. I'm still not sure if it's going to be the entire amount. Um, You know, this has kind of been sliced and diced uh, and and maybe it's a smaller portion. But I I think that's a bridge we're going to have to cross maybe late March, maybe even in April. Um, You know, I I think, you know, it said earlier, well, hopefully we can get... I'm skeptical, I'm highly skeptical, obviously, that we're going to get an appropriations uh, bills done this week or next. So the next hard stop for a CR would be, I think it's around March uh, 22nd or March 23rd. That's when Congress will break for the Easter recess. And then, you know, you really are starting to get into nail biting territory, which is if there's a CR that goes into April, you know, we really start to bump up against the, uh, the the automatic uh, cuts in the fiscal responsibility act um you know you look at the calendar there just there aren't a whole lot of days here uh for all this to come together uh when you look at the recess calendar and and i just i i think if there's a path for the ukraine supplemental it's going to be part of probably a some kind of discharge position petition in the, in the house because I just don't see Speaker Johnson, you know, giving ground to the extreme limits of the GOP right now that they really just don't want to see this aid go through. Um, do are are you I mean, do you do you ultimately think that it goes through or do we have to use novel methods? Right. I mean, uh, Dove Zakheim on uh, the Friday podcast has long said we should do a lend lease program. Uh, or other uh, interesting things. Uh, European governments are meeting to try to figure out how to pick up aid. Although, you know, European officials have said there's basically no Plan B to the United States stepping in and and you know being the arsenal of democracy. And I want to get to that in a minute. Um, do you, do you think well, it ends up? I think I think again it has to be. Look, this is also a question of leadership. The president could send. You know, he has the authority. He could send uh, equipment to Ukraine. Um, but you know, the question, and you kind of heard DOD state this, that that's not going to happen because you really are showing any of the critical, uh, levels 
data is classified, so I don't have you know clear insight into it. But whatever our reserves and war stocks are, um, you know, you're you're going to start cutting into that the more you send to Ukraine without a path to backfill it. Um, so he could do that, but I think you know that would then raise uh, the the risk to Taiwan and and uh, you know China's adventurism. That is something I think the GOP cares a lot about. Um, so I think, again, it, it kind of comes back to leadership. You know, the president really needs to make a much stronger case um, to the American people why this is important. And maybe he does take some of those steps that that could force the GOP hand on this uh, Ukraine aid package because, um, you know, in the absence of it, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Ukraine can hold out for a while, but it's going to get grimmer. Um, you, you know, you saw this uh, report last week that what they've got uh, something like 400 ballistic missiles from Iran. Um, I saw some data. I think Ukraine had estimated that um, Russia's production rate of Iskander missiles was around 30 a month. So you're really talking about a, a very substantial increase in the in the Russian ability to use uh, ballistic or, or standoff uh, long-range weapons against Ukraine. Uh, and that's going to deplete their air defense interceptor inventory pretty quickly. And when that happens, that starts opening up the window for Russia to use its uh, its air power, which has really been sidelined in many ways because of um, uh, Ukrainian air defenses. And when that happens, then I think you, you start to see potentially a more dynamic battlefield than what we've seen in 2022 to 2023. I'm going to ask you about, um, you know, efforts to step up uh, the industrial base, because we've been talking a lot about that on uh, the Sunday podcast. I, I would also point out parenthetically, the president tomorrow is going to meet with the big four uh, in Congress to try to figure out how to move uh, the Ukraine legislation forward, right? So all eyes are on whether the president can use some of his uh, masterful legislative skills to push this uh, through. Um, I want to get to the industrial-based ramifications uh, of all of this uh, in uh, a second, because I'm a little bit concerned, as I think you are, that we're not building enough stuff fast enough. And we talk, we've talk we been talking about that on the business podcast a little bit as well. I would add also parenthetically uh, that um, you know, the, the president is going to be meeting with the big four in Congress tomorrow at the White House in order to try to uh, put together uh, some uh, a form of agreement to get Ukraine aid uh, moving. I want to start with uh, the sanctions. The administration last week uh, imposed 500 new sanctions uh, on Russia in the wake uh, of uh, the killing uh, or uh, assassination uh, of uh, Alexei uh, Navalny, you you refer to it as the murder of Alexei Navalny, and I think that you know all three of those are are accurate, uh, especially as we understand that there actually might have been a deal that was in the works uh, to free Navalny and and between five and seven others, and and Putin decided that you know he was going to make his vote known uh, that uh, you know he certainly wasn't going to uh, you know be released at any point, right? No man, no problem. Uh, unfortunately, because Putin subscribes to that Stalinist dictum. Um, are these 500 new sanctions, Byron, going to mean anything ultimately? I mean, well, because the sanctions well, we've think, already yeah, imposed are, of course. I, I think they've always, they impose a cost. You know, there, there's there's nothing that's airtight. I mean, the only way you really get something airtight is if you, you know, literally uh, have a blockade. And the global trade is just too porous. Um 
it'll it'll force a reset in some of these supply chains that Russia has built up. I saw some data um, that one blogger had pulled out about how Turkey was starting to react to some of these these uh, latest round of sanctions, and and that might be that's one way to get them, but. It, it's still porous. So I think this is the old whack-a-mole game. It's not going to shut down the Russian economy. It's not going to shut down the Russian defense industry, but it will impose costs and it's going to force them um, potentially, you know, they're going to have to rebuild um, some of the channels that are going to cut be cut off. Um, you know, there's going to be a Senate hearing tomorrow on Tuesday on U.S. technology and Russian weapons systems. It's with outside wep outside witnesses, but you know, this has been going on for two years now, uh, despite the initial implementation of sanctions when the war first started. So the Russians are creative on this. And, you know, arguably, if you go back to uh, Putin's background, you know, this is effectively, I think by a lot of reports, you know, what he did um, in, during the Cold War when he was stationed in Dresden, it was basically, you know, how do you get technology out of the West and, and to help uh, the Warsaw Pact and the and the USSR. So um, they're old hands at this in a funny way. And and um, and I will say this: it's one of these foolish debates about non-defense and discre defense discretionary spending because BIS at Commerce, you know, is the entity that uh, makes these assessments, and um, and then Treasury helps enforce them. So, you know, without the proper staffing um, and they need people, they need experts to do this kind of work. Um, you know, that's another element that gets crippled by um, by continuing CRs and potentially uh, some pretty significant cuts if Congress can't get its act together. So you, we tend to talk about defense here, but obviously, you know, to your point, these sanctions and export controls are also a critical element of national security. And I, I just wish that people would pay more attention to that when we have these debates about CRs and cuts and, you know, oh, it's going to impact the Department of Defense. Well, no, it's going to impact all elements of U.S. national power. And and before we move on from this topic, um, I want to commend uh, the audience to check out uh, the new movie After the Fall uh, about uh, Alexei uh, Navalny. It was produced by my uh, good friend Andrew Duncan uh, and uh, directed by uh, uh, filmmaker uh, uh, Matthew Torn. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a nine year long uh, project, includes never before seen interviews with Alexei Navalny, who takes the task Western, uh, the West, uh, for having allowed uh, Putin and Putinism to be uh, created and those complicit in the West uh, that have allowed this to happen. And I, I think it's a very uh, important film at an important time. Uh, and anybody who knows uh, both Andrew and Matthew know how passionate they are about democracy movements around the world, whether in Hong Kong. Uh, or, or in Russia. So I suggest to the audience to check that uh, movie out um, and, and to listen to Alexei Navalny's wisdom uh, that was recorded uh, uh, before he uh, went back into captivity and, and eventual uh, execution. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Byron, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit to talk about production, right? Uh, we've been talking uh, about the need to increase 
uh, weapons production to accelerate it for a long time in the wake of, you know, I mean, this isn't just the second anniversary of Russia's attack on Ukraine. It's the 10th anniversary of the first attack that ended up taking uh, Crimea. Um, it's been two years since the last full-up invasion to sort of finish the job that was started in 2014. Then there was a, a sense that we're going to accelerate weapons production. This was a Titan vendor, a turning point. And yet here we are. And aside from artillery shells, the needle really doesn't appear to be moving particularly quickly. You've been thinking about this. You've been talking to a lot of people. Where where are we now? And, and where is it that we're going? Is this a sense that it's a lagging indicator because there's a lot of activity that we're not seeing, or is there actually just not a lot of activity, which is what I and many other people fear is the case? I think it's that there's not a lot of activity, but it's a threefold problem, Fago. I think the first is, you know, a lot of the contracts just haven't been let yet. Um, and I'm sorry, I mean, it kind of goes back to our, our earlier conversation about the security supplemental. It's like, so, you know, you, you can look at the line items in that and, and conclude that there might be a lot of money. Um, if you go out and hire people and start building facilities, you know, that can take a year or two. If that money's not there, you're, you're going to be firing a lot of people and, and you know, like trying to shop your, your brand new facility is potentially a, you know, shopping center or something that someone else in the economy might use. So, you know, that I think is the, is the second and third issue here is you really do, industry talks about the demand signal and the demand signal to me is really contracts. Um, I do find, however, that um, it's maybe more foundational. And I think this is probably a conversation with people who know this a lot better than I do. But, you know, are there ways that you could really think about building weapons, designing weapons, or thinking about a, a supply network that's that's much more resilient, that um, <clears throat> that you didn't have to wait two or three years to build a new plant or factory. Um, you know, we saw some of this during uh, MRAP production, which is not the best example of me. I mean, people talk about, oh, that's a good indication of how quickly the Department of Defense can move. It's like, yeah, but in World War II terms, that was glacial. So I, I find the supply network issues still um, bothersome. And I, I really do think some companies have just lost their ability to scale rapidly. Uh, part, part of it may just be their own innate conservatism. Um, but on the other hand, I, I really do understand that need to, to see business put on a contract um, because, you know, there, there is still that risk that, um, you can build your new plant, you could hire a couple of thousand workers, and then in 2025, there's an armistice, a new administration, and uh, and and that Ukraine work that you were counting on to put all those people to work and fill those plants vanishes. Um, so I, I do think, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a problem. Uh, I do think it came up a little bit on some of the earnings calls last week. I know BA Systems talked about, you know, some of their expansion plans. Saab Group earlier in the month had talked about, you know, building a new plant in India, expanding their facilities in Sweden, um, looking at, at U.S. expansion. So I, I find the dialogue from some of the European companies, quite frankly, to be a little bit more forward-leaning right now than 
than some of the U.S. companies, but maybe because of the dynamics around the 2024 election, there might just be more uncertainty about the U.S. budget outlook than uh, than maybe some of the Europeans are looking at right now. And what, um, you know, obviously uh, the question of uh, European defense spending is always foremost in the minds uh, of some, and Europe is trying to stand up and do more on its own. The good news is they're spending more. The, the reasons they're spending more, unfortunately, is because of um, a, a lack of conviction that the United States will actually be there in the future for them, which is very problematic for an alliance that's that's predicated on trust. Um, ultimately, where do you see the European defense spending needle moving, um, obviously some positive steps, but also some worrying indicators, right? Germany is having budget problems. France is looking at budget cuts, especially as farmers all over Europe take to the roads, uh, basically to call for more help, right? Um, you know, even though there are some in the European body politic who say, okay, look, I mean, farmers already get a lot of help uh, from from European governments as, as sort of an, an entitled class. Um, you know, what, where, where is this all going and is Europe going to be able to sustain this level of spending? And if not, I mean, there are many Europeans that obviously feel the sting the closer, as, as, as Sash suggests, or closer to uh, the Russian border. But at the end of the day, they want health care in the entitlement state that they, they built and that includes early retirement, right? So how does this get squared out? And where does Europe find the money? I mean, France already has a $3 trillion plus dollar deficit. It's 110% of GDP. Yeah, um, it's a it's a great question, Boggle. I don't have a good answer for it other than I think maybe to Sasha's point, you know, the closer you are and maybe the more history you have with, with Russia, um, the more concerned you're going to be about what Russia could look like, <clears throat> not in 2024, but what's, got, what's it going to look like in 2028 or 2030? Um, you know, the timing, for example, of, of some of the things that Europe is buying, uh, you know, the Patriot MSC deal that was announced with uh, MBDA and RTX was pretty interesting because I think the deliveries of those weapons start in 2027. Um, I think it's just natural. I mean, I think every war, particularly in a democracy, you know, you're always going to have these debates. Is there war worriness? You know, how do you, how do you sustain this spending? You know, I wrote about this in my, um, my Sunday night note and one of the touch points was, you know, European militaries have really, um, they, they've shrunk significantly, certainly going back to what they were able to feel during the Cold War. I used 1983 as a reference point, but obviously the Russian military is, is a fraction of what it was then too. So, you know, this idea that I think Senator uh Vance had talked about in a Financial Times article that, oh, you know, if the Europeans had just sustained spending at $8 trillion, you know, they would have spent over $8 trillion over the last 30 years. I mean, that that's ludicrous. I mean, the, the threat had changed dramatically. And this is why I think you're seeing, you know, a range of issues on the industrial base capacity. How are we going to ramp up? But I, but I do think that the size of that's probably the next step for me. To really understand, are we kind of in a, a cyclical increase in European defense spending, or is there some secular shift going on? You know, what I'm going to be looking for are, is there more talk of not just modernizing Europe's existing forces, but are they actually going to start thinking about expanding the size of those forces? So we're talking about more brigades, more squadrons, um, more support for those, those uh, combat elements. 
you know, naval systems will figure somewhat, but I think this is, if you're thinking about Russia, this is really going to be more about air power and land power and uh, the elements that support that. Um, that, I think, to me, is where you get in the super cycle. And I think people just need to be, they'll probably have to have that fear that, you know, if Russia is able to um, win something out of Ukraine and then starts rattling, uh, you know, the Baltics or Poland, uh, if there are big refugee movements out of Ukraine, you know, and, and just more instability, more more just sabotage acts, whatever you want to call it, where this thing starts coming closer to home to Europe, it will impact uh, European defense spending. And, and I think at a point, you know, yeah, so people don't get their pension at age 55 or 60, or maybe that full pension, um, you know, but if people see a, a, a fundamental risk to um, their lives, that can change their calculation as to what services they want from the government. Um, I, I think that Russia is at its most dangerous uh, as much for the military risk it poses than for the toxic, uh, uh, its toxic information abilities uh, that are able to disrupt societies. Their fingerprints are all over the, uh, the United States. They yeah. uh, were deeply in, involved in Brexit uh, in order to try to undermine the European Union. And the incredible willingness uh, that people in each one of these capitals, whether they're in the United States, uh, whether they're in France, whether they're in Italy or Germany or anywhere else, uh, that get supported by Russians informationally or otherwise, that whatever priority, narrow priority they have, whether it's it's Brexit or undermining the EU or um, you know being angry at you know diversity, inclusion, uh, and and equity um, that you know or on reproductive rights, it's it's good to get help from the Russians as long as I can achieve my aims, and I think that that's what's a little bit different. And to me, it would not be that expensive for us to counter some of these messages, and yet. We're not willing to even expend the energy to do to do the counter messaging on it, which I find fascinating. Right? That's that's cheap. Yep. And and we're we're not doing that, nor nor even vaguely succeeding. Byron, we got a uh, about a minute and a half left. What is it folks should be paying attention to this week? Well, Senate Armed Services are holding a February twenty eighth hearing on the Defense Acquisition and Industrial Workforce, which may get to some of the points about scaling that we just talked about. And then there's a twenty a February twenty ninth hearing with U.S. Strategic Command and Space Command, the kind of the posture statements before the FY25 budget drop. Um, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee is holding a February 27th hearing on U.S. technology and how that's funding Russia's war machine. Um, senior DOD uniform leadership is speaking at uh, events at CSIS. Uh, I know the Air Force Chief of Staff is also speaking at, uh, at Brookings on February 28th. Um, Senate Foreign Relations has a hearing on uh, kind of the Houthi forces in the Red Sea and then another one on Iran's proxy forces. Chatham House is doing a, uh, a security and defense conference February 27th in London. Um, there's a taking stock of Ukraine event at Hudson Institute. And I think Atlanta Council is doing something on the 27th as well on Ukraine, kind of where we are and where we might be going. So um there, there's a lot going on, you know, besides just the what's going to happen with the CR and, and the uh, security supplemental in Congress and then a, a fairly full agenda from the think tanks as well. 
Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. You got it, Fargo. Thank you very much. Thanks very much to all of you for joining us, and we'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, have a great day.